Our Old Testament passage comes from Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words, whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom, leaving his chamber, and, like a strong man, runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise and simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandments of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, in keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them have not dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Our New Testament reading comes from Romans 10, 14 through 18. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. But I ask, have they not heard? Indeed they have. For their voice has gone out to all the earth, and their words to the ends of the world. The word of the Lord. Well, good morning. Uh, as you've heard, uh, my name is Josh Casey. I'm a pastor for discipleship over at, um, at Stonebridge Church up in Cedar Rapids. My family and I have lived in North Liberty for the past several years, uh, where we've been a pastor um, in the area, and, uh, and during that time, we've uh, got another, another kid, grown up, and have a lot of friends here. So we find Iowa City to be, when we think of what is our home, when people say, where are you from, we say Iowa City, so it's really sweet to be preaching here um, today with you. Uh, one of the things that I do need to, uh, to acknowledge is the sweetness of the gospel throughout the, uh, throughout the area, is that um, in my time going to Stonebridge Church, uh, early on, I said, uh, I would love it if we could, because we have several pastors who preach, I said, would it be wonderful if I if I could go and give solo pastors or, or, or pastors who carry a heavy preaching load, if I could give them a day or two off. And, uh, and, they, and the elders said, this is a great idea. And so that's one of the reasons I'm here. It's not because I you know, just wanted to come and preach to you. It's because uh, there's a vision uh, there at Stonebridge Church uh, that pastors preach a lot about rest, and they also need to take rest. And so that's, a, that's one thing that they are doing. Our senior pastor is preaching right now. He texted me right before the sermon and said, Go give them Christ. And so, uh, and so we just wanted to uh, extend some of that sweetness that, that the church 
regionally is worshiping together with you now. Um, well, before I get to... Uh, Oh, I think I just turned myself off. The, uh, before I get too emotional there and, 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 and enjoy the, the, the moment here, I'm going to make a, a hard pivot into our, into our psalm today. Um, today's text I find to be pretty, pretty fitting. Uh, it is Psalm 19. Uh, I think the, uh, the bulletin there accurately says it's in the, the Pew Bible, uh, page 456. Um, it is fitting for us, even though, uh, even though I understand you're going through the book of Matthew and you're in the, uh, the Sermon on the Mount, uh, I, I find this uh, passage to be maybe kind of a side note to, to me that question that you're wondering uh, when Jesus says, I have not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Uh, today, we're going to look into some aspects of that law that Jesus understands himself to be fulfilling. Uh, he is not abolishing it, but somehow through our text today, we will find that Jesus, in fact, fulfills the law. He meets its righteous, just requirements perfectly perfectly so in a way that you and I could not. So let's get into it. As we, uh, as we heard, uh, read a couple times, a couple different translations today already, Psalm 19 burst forth with resounding praise for our Creator. It says, the heavens declare the glory of God. And all other, there are other psalms about creation that invite us to uh, different kinds of responses. Uh, for example, we get Psalm 8. It, uh, after looking at creation, David moves us to a posture of grateful awe as we acknowledge our privileged position in creation. Right? The, uh, the words we remember from Psalm 8 are, what is man that you are mindful of him? So also we, uh, we see another psalm about creation, Psalm 148, where the psalmist actually gets into the director's uh, chair and starts to, to orchestrate all of creation, all in heavens, all that has breath to respond in praise. Praise the name of the Lord. So here in Psalm 19, we get another right response to observing creation. And this one takes a turn that the others don't. This one takes us to a contrite heart and a confident confession. And so, as the, as the words in here uh, give us the picture, we need to activate our imagination today. Uh, it gives us this picture of the sun running its course, like a, like a son that comes out, a, bride, or a bridegroom that comes out of his chamber, a strong man that runs his course. We're going to see the sun dawn and then go over us, exposing everything. Nothing escapes its light. We're going to see that this light, as we follow creation and the law, and Christ, we're going to see that it, this light actually narrows right down into the intangible, into our very words, into our very meditations. And so let's journey here together this morning through the psalm, looking at creation, at the law, at our confession, and then ultimately at Christ. So verses 1 through 6 are focused on creation. Creation reveals the glory of God. Now, you'll see uh, the activity of creation here. I, I assume that you have the Bible open. If you don't, again, there's a Bible in front of you. 456 is the page. Uh, look at all the action words here. What is the activity of creation that we find here? We say that creation declares, proclaims, pours out, speaks. It's making a lot of noise. Even though it's silent, it's making a lot of noise. It does this day to day and night to night. That is, always and continuously. Its speech falls upon everything and everyone. The voice goes out 
through all the earth, their words to the ends of the earth. Nothing is hidden. And so there's a lot of activity, but what is the content? If there's a declaration of creation, what is the content that is being declared? I think it's nothing more than the glory of God as creator. You see that glory is that, that, that kavod, weighty, rich honor and reality of a sovereign being who is before creation. This is the message that has come out day to day at all times to every place. The activity of creation declares God as creator. Now imagine the picture that we have here. Is, uh, is, is I, I imagine... It could be a little different than what you're imagining, kind of this mountain scene. There's this like mountain prairie, there's this city here, maybe a path, and you see right on kind of the ridge coming up there, the dawn of the morning, you know, the, the, the heavens declare this. And in those, those very beams of those first rays of light, you get, you get the declaration that he has done this, he is alive. You know, the psalmist elsewhere in Psalm 127 says, uh, more or less, that. There are other gods, they, they need to sleep, they need to rest, but this God doesn't. He stays awake, he needs no refreshment, he needs no re-energizing, he doesn't weary, he is able to keep you through the night, and the early rays of the morning, he has done it. He has brought you from your slumber again. Silently, creation declares the glory of God. But it seems to be somewhat of a cruel jest if, uh, if, if, if creation declares it, but we don't know how to receive it, or if we're not able to receive it. But we read throughout Scripture that not only has the glory of God been declared, so also has it been sufficiently received. Romans 1, 19 and 20 says, What can be known about God is plain to them, is plain to people, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, his divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. To summarize those two verses, what can be known about God has been clearly perceived in the things that have been made. Now, there's um, a Dutch theologian, Armin Bavink. He explains the knowability of God so beautifully. He says, the revelation of God in nature and in history could have no effect upon man if there were not something in man himself that responded to it. And so the revelation of God and all the works of his hands would be quite unknowable to man if God had not planted in his soul an inerasable sense of his existence and being. God reveals himself outside of man and he reveals himself also within man. He does not leave himself without witness in the human heart and conscience. And I know there's a lot of, of, of poetry and literary and art. If, you are, uh, uh, if, if sports analogies help you, he has thrown a pass and he has made you able to catch it and you have caught it. Even today in the hearing of what I've said so far, you have caught the fact that the Lord is creator. And just as God speaks to the human heart, so also does he speak of his own heart. To mankind, And this he does in his law. And so we look at the next verses here, verses 7 through 11. The law reveals the Lord's character. 
And so if we look at this uh, as a whole, uh, just generally the law, the testimony, these are all the words I'm going through um, in, in the poetry here. The law, testimony, precepts, commandments, the rules of the Lord, uh, they're all somewhat synonymous, though a little bit different, somewhat synonymous ways that the psalmist generally speaks of the revealed purpose and plans of God. In verses uh, 7 through 9, we have, as the poetry unfolds, six similarly structured lines. And they basically go like this. It's uh, something of the Lord is, you know, fill in the blank, is something. It describes what that thing is. And then it says what it does. Um, for the sake of time, I'm not going to go thoroughly through this that we could spend forever going through this. I would encourage you to, to meditate on this uh, deeply. Uh, an easy way to do this is just to write blank of the Lord is blank and does blank. I mean, that's, that's the pattern six times over here. It's very striking in how each of these things of the Lord is described and then what they do. Um, from some of that, I'll give a little bit of the, the meditation on this. It seems as though verses 7, 8, and 9 provide us the purpose of the law, the guidance of the law, and then the effect of the law. Verse 7, the purpose of the law. It seems to be pretty clearly stated there uh, that, that the purpose of the law is reviving the soul and making wise the simple. So a, uh, uh, reviving the soul, bringing those to Christ, and then those who are in Christ, then making them wise. It's both evangelism and discipleship, all in one verse. It doesn't matter. It seems that for the purpose of this verse, though, in this passage, it doesn't seem to matter so much that we understand the nuances of the scope of the law, whether that be the Ten Commandments, the Mosaic Law, the Pentateuch. It seems that what matters most in this passage is that the law is the Lord's, that it comes from the Lord, that it is founded upon the Lord. And also that it is unquestionably perfect, uh, which is the same uh, word there. The word behind it is the same as blameless. We read that uh, in Psalm uh, 18 uh, to describe blameless things. It's a blameless law that comes from the Lord. And as such, it seems to be that, that accurate, adequate thing that's able to expose and identify sin. And also what's needed to reconcile to a relational God. And so that would be what accomplishes God's purpose of the law, making alive those who are spiritually dead. I think the ESV says uh, reviving, uh, reviving the soul. And there's another purpose, though. If we follow the, the imagery of, of, of verse 7, that the Lord has uh, established his law, his good, his perfect, blameless law. But he's not just sitting there establishing the law. He's saying this is, the, this is what, what is binding. And then he enters the courtroom of creation that he has created. He himself has put himself to his own law. And he provides us a testimony. The testimony is that he is sovereign. He is holy. And he has steadfast love. And that testimony the psalmist tells us, is sure, which means it is a trustworthy foundation. Isaiah echoes this idea. It says the word of our God will stand forever. And so if you've wondered, can I believe the words of God? You can. They are sure and trustworthy. They come from his character. 
They come from his sovereignty as creator God. But it's not just a static thing that maybe some stenographer just wrote it down and put it in the archives in, that te- in the courtroom. We know that the word of the Lord is living and active. And so this word then actively builds up. It edifies and thus makes wise the simple. The purpose of the law is to make alive those who are spiritually dead and to make wise the simple. And so the Lord kind of points this out in this, in this mountain scene. We see the sun's kind of moving across the day and we see this city here. He's saying there's something here. There's, there's a goodness, there's a life that can be lived. There's, there's a wisdom that can be lived. Maybe in this, this city that's here. And how do we get to the city as the law, as the light of the Lord, as he reveals himself, leads us there. It's as though you know, David in his, in his imagery is taking this big picture of the course of the sun, and he's narrowing it down to the pilgrim on the path and saying, there's a way. I want to illuminate the way to this life. Verse 8 seemed to suggest a guidance that comes from the Lord. He doesn't just say, be this. He also helps us to understand how to get there. And for the sake of time, I'll only focus in on, on, on a very key thing that happens in this verse. If you look at the parallels between the two, uh, the two uh, uh, parts of verse 8. At the first part, we get this general idea of precepts or guidance. The law guides us there. But something changes. There's this infinite God who gives us creation to guide us with maybe our reason. We can come to natural law, uh, uh, certain ways to get to a generally right way of living. But that second half of verse 8 takes us somewhere else. It takes the infinite and it makes it intimate. Because it's not just general creation that gives a commandment. Who gives a commandment? A relational, covenantal God. The Lord gives commandments. And with that word, commandment, he reminds us very clearly that there's a relationship at stake here. The commandments of the Lord are really striking, the way that that they're described. Because I would think this image of the sun that we just came off of uh, in the verses before Staring into the sun is going to blind me. However, a poet here understands that staring into the commandments of the Lord does what? Enlightens. You see more when you stare into the light of the Lord's revelation. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. And so there's a purpose of the law, there's a guidance of the law, but then there's effect of the law. I would probably pause here had I not, you know, read the rest of the the passage, had I written the rest of the passage, which is not mine to do, but in the Josh Casey version of the Bible here, it says, and then the the, the humble servant says, wow, that's neat, (laughs) that's beautiful, that's creative, Uh, not fear of the Lord. The intended effect of all of this, of creation of the Lord's law, is a fear of the Lord. And now this fear is not some, uh, you know, fear of a capricious, angry ogre in the sky, God, just staring down at us, judging us, shaking his head. This fear of the Lord is a reverent fear, which moves believers away from their sin and toward a holy and forgiving Lord who atones for their sin. It moves away from their unholiness to the holy redeemer. Jesus Christ. And this move here in reverent fear 
seeks a right relationship with that creator God, that covenantal relational Lord. But in doing so, the love of God turns us to love of others. It then motivates us into uh, that second effect of the law, which is socially. The rules of the Lord, the just decrees and judgments, the way in which our interaction with each other is upheld. And so what do we do with this? We move from creation to law to a proper response of contrite hearts. We follow, as, as David uh, models for us, the right response to all of this information. One of the things he models is, is honest reflection. Verse 12 is where I'm at right now. Note David's exemplary response here. He says, who can discern his errors? I mean, it's, it's, it's when you go into a dark room and you turn on the flashlight or you turn on the light and you've got cockroaches and you say, what, what do we do with this? That's what the law is doing in our own lives. The light turns on and we can see exactly how we are not holy as we have been called to be. He says, who can discern his errors? Who can know me with such penetrating light that goes beyond uh, the, the morning, beyond the, the prairie that I'm walking through or the path that I'm on? It goes all the way into the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart. When the light of revelation hits his darkened soul, verse 12 and 13 says it exposes hidden faults, presumptuous sins, and great transgressions. Now, we could go on about each one of these. I want to pick one of these. I believe it will be helpful for us today to heed the warning of the law, as good and right servants do, and spend a moment specifically reflecting on our own presumptuous sins. Because that, that would seem strange. I feel like the other ones, maybe we can work through that and figure that out. Presumptuous sins is, a, is, a, is kind of a strange term. So maybe it would be helpful to look at that. Um, Charles Spurgeon, a prolific uh, 19th century British preacher, uh, he explains with Baptist fire uh, presumptuous sins. He says, uh, he says presumptuous sins are uh, a sin committed in at least one of, the four, of these four ways. So if you're a note taker, here, here are four ways in which we commit presumptuous sins. He says the first one is a presumptuous sin is committed against light and knowledge against light and knowledge. And so it's, uh, it's, so it's knowing what the rules are, um, but uh, then not doing those things. I mean, that's kind of like what a transgression is. Uh, you, you are a trespass, you go past it. Um, and so we can, we can kind of think that, but it's also a little bit, a little bit more than that. It's, um, it's kind of like if you have a, a, a dog or a kid, they're not the same kind of a thing, but they do the same thing. Um, when you tell them not to do something and you physically see them like like look away from you like they didn't hear you, that, that thing. Uh, the, the Old Testament calls this stiff neck. You stiff neck people, they stiffen their neck because they're acting like they didn't hear the thing. Um, it's not dogs and kids, it's us. We do that. We do that. Uh, another way we can have a presumptuous sin is with deliberation. That's with intention. Like we mean to do it. But and you can say, okay, shame on you. We, we, we mean to do it, but there's also this, this idea of this, uh, even when you feign ignorance, um, I, I don't know if I've ever done this. I'm, I'm sure you guys have done this, but uh, is it whenever, when maybe show of hands would be really great on this one. Uh, uh, have you ever like, like driven and made sure to not figure out what the speed limit is so that when you might get pulled over by the cop, you could be like, I didn't know, officer. You knew. 
You knew you were speeding. You don't know by how many maybe, but you knew it was fast. We do that. I'm going to skip that part of the Bible because that one calls out the sin that I don't want to. I want to play the ignorant card. We do it with deliberation, even if it's feigned ignorance. Presumptuous sin is committed. This is the third one. Uh, merely for sinning's sake. I, oh, how our conversations are filled with this. It's what I call the, uh, the, the red flag conversational but. I don't mean to be judgy, but. I don't mean to critique, but. I, I, I don't mean to gossip, but. I don't mean to slander. I don't want to speak poorly of them, but. I mean, every single one of those buts was like a big red flag that says you're about to enter Sinville. And we just blow right past it. Why do we blow past it? Because we enjoy sinning for sin's sake. Because it feels good. Okay, so now if we aren't all completely demoralized, I've got one more. One more here. Uh, presumptuous sin is a sin committed from man's rash confidence in his own strength. This is that strange thing we all do that we think we are the exception. We think that everyone else can't do it, and we can, we're just a little tougher morally. We got more discipline and fortitude. One more drink, one more bet, one more, one more comment, one more poking the argument. I can turn it off. I won't go to sin. I'm just going to get real close. Your sin is no match for temptation. Your fortitude, your discipline, your, uh, your, your know-how, your personal strength and morality is no match for temptation. That's why we all just prayed, deliver us from evil. Lead us not to temptation, because we need someone else to help us. David here, as he writes Psalm 19, looks at the law of the Lord, and he understands he is just like every single one of us, and we are smoked without something else. You see, the law of the Lord exposes our sin. It's like the exemplary move that, that Isaiah makes when he cries out, woe is me, for I am lost. I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, which would be great if he just said that, but then he gives the reason, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. I have been enlightened by the light of the Lord's revelation and I realized that the first thing I should realize, that I should know, that I should come to the knowledge of, that I should say is, O oh Lord, you are holy, I am not that, and I cannot stand in your presence. Woe am I, a man of unclean lips. In the presence of a pure and holy Lord, you and I stand informed, guilty, and condemned. We are sinners. We are morally unclean. And none of our anxious efforts will clear our record. None of our church attendance, none of our uh, reading and memorizing scripture, none of our serving at church, none of our uh, being good people, and none of our giving, none of that stuff will do it. Nothing will clean us, nothing will purify us except for the precious blood of Jesus Christ, who came not to abolish the law, not to change the law, but to fulfill it. Hebrews 9, 14, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience 
from dead works to serve the living God. That is such a sweet verse. If you are like me and you think you have to be good enough and you can't understand the Lord's unconditional love because it's kind of nice and if it is conditional and you're good enough and he says, nice job, you've done it, it'll never get us there. The blood of Christ is the only thing that will make us right when we look at the law of the Lord, when we look at the revealed uh, character of God. Now, brother, sisters, friends, your sin is real. Your sin is yours. Your sin is offensive in the face of a holy God. But the good news of the gospel is that your sin is no match for the steadfast love of God and his mercy. You can be forgiven. So turn to Christ. And this is where the Spirit moved David to give us word of a humble confession. From a deep recognition of his sin and confidence in the Lord's strength, he invites the wise to cry out intimately. In verse 14, he cries out not, you are the rock, you are a rock. He says, you are my rock. You are my rock. And if the Lord is only inactive, he just sits there as a steady rock, he is still able to be your sovereign rock of refuge. So run to him and cling to him. But again, the gospel is more than that because we have more to read here in our passage. The good news is that we have a sovereign God who is immovable and that God has chosen to enter relationship with us. He's chosen to covenant with us he doesn't stay distant or inactive, but he moves towards us. He moves towards us so that he can deal with what the light exposes, that we might return to the presence of God and dwell with him in the warmth of his life. Because Christ pays for sin through repentant faith, David urges us to intimately call the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior, my Redeemer, my Deliverer, my Savior. And so we respond by crying out to him, asking for forgiveness. But we also respond through a hope-filled proclamation. In light of the Lord's self-revelation through creation and law and Christ, we are urged to contrite hearts. And so maybe two things that we can do would be to proclaim Christ to ourselves each and every day. You know, as, those, as, the, as, as the dawn comes and, and the sun rises, there is a, there's a way of making memory. It's making an Ebenezer, a memory stone of sorts. When you see the light come through your window in the morning, when you see your alarm clock, wherever it is, when you see the floor as you're getting out of bed, maybe it would be great to acknowledge the new mercies of the Lord every morning and just say, Lord, you have done it. Somehow you kept me alive while I did nothing. And I'm here again. I mean, that's just a small thing to respond to what's actually happening in us uh, in every single day. And as we declare that to ourselves, as we say that out loud, Lord, you've done it, thank you. We then turn, as Christ says, is, is then we go and we shine that light. That, sh that light that changes us, we then go shine that light in the world around us. 
Uh, we've read it already this morning. Uh, but, but the Apostle Paul, he takes Psalm 19, he, he quotes it in, in kind of a, a worldwide evangelistic kind of a sense. Rather than just a convicts you of your, of your sin, it says when that work is done, when the, when the light of the world has changed you as your Redeemer, then go forth and share that good news. Go take that out. Romans 10, how then will they, will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How then are they to believe in him of who they have never heard? And maybe I'm going to pause there. When I say in them, I'm going to say maybe think of an unbeliever that you know. Now think of them that way. How then will they call on him whom they have not believed? How, how are they to believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? Or the word there is proclaiming. It's not just pastors in a pulpit. It's someone proclaiming. How are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news, the light of Jesus Christ. But I ask, have they not heard? Indeed they have. Psalm 19, he quotes, their voice has gone out to all the earth, their words to the end of the world. And so brothers and sisters, as we close here, if you have tasted the bitterness of your own sin that has been brought to light, if you have tasted the sweetness of the forgiveness of sin through the blood of Jesus Christ, if you know the intrinsic worth more valuable than gold, that is the joy of right standing with God, then the urge is confess your sin and then go tell someone about it. You don't have to tell someone about the entire story of your life. You could just tell them about the goodness of the Lord and his mercy today. Go tell them the good news. And so we have much to appreciate that the Lord uh, Jesus Christ does not abolish this law, but fulfills it. He is the creator God. He is the one who directs us and guides us to a repentant, contrite heart, fear of him, and he is the one who is able to make us blameless and innocent in the sight of the Lord. So today, we follow the, uh, the light of the sun through creation and law, Christ. We find that it's sweet, it's delightful, it's warming. I think as we continue in worship here now, um, we're going to, to go to the table, and we're also going to see that Jesus Christ, the light of the world, is nourishing to our souls. So let's move now to celebrate the Lord's Supper.